Hey everyone, welcome back to the Video Games Podcast. This is the 55th episode and there was a lot happening this week inside the world of gaming and out. Now before we get started, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to be here and give us a listen. It's very much appreciated and I know everyone has a lot going on in their lives. We are currently busy working on our reviews for Ori and the Will of the Wisps and Call of Duty Warzone, which we will talk about today in the show, along with news that Reggie fils is back in the world of gaming and PlayStation-exclusive Horizon Zero Dawn is coming to PC this summer. And we are also going to talk about the biggest story of the week, and that is that E3 2020 has been cancelled. Plenty to talk about, and we're going to start right after this. It was only a matter of time before it happened and on Tuesday of this week with only a day of lead up minus speculation, Activision and Infinity Ward announced that they will be joining the already crowded battle royale genre. This type of reel is very similar to what EA did last year with Apex Legends and that model led to strong success. It will be very interesting to see what the goliath of the shooter genre over the past two decades can do in the free to play battle royale market. Questions will always arise if the genre needs another competitor and if this is actually a dying fad. While the only answer for those questions is time, the only thing Call of Duty always brings is the rising tide that lifts all ships. The big difference between Warzone and last year's Call of Duty Battle Royale entry, Blackout, is that this will be free to play. This is where we see if zero entry costs combined with crossplay and the Call of Duty brand can become the biggest in the genre. I think there is a strong possibility that it can, but without a doubt we will be told the first day, first week, and first month numbers as they will be enormous, but the challenge for Activision will be keeping the community engaged without going back to Apex, Fortnite, PUBG, or any other game that would attract those gamers back to where they came from. And as expected, Activision made a big deal about telling us how big the launch was for Warzone with Activision announcing 6 million players in the first 24 hours, which is about double what Apex Legends did, and then it hit 15 million in 4 days, which is pretty impressive as well. Call of Duty is a name that carries around weight, and offering it as a free-to-play for the first time is a monumental moment in this series-long history. Yes, there were free-to-play mobile offerings, but in terms of full production value, this is a first. Servers were a little bogged down initially with matchmaking taking a while, but that is almost to be expected with this many people jumping in as Activision announced 6 million. Most server-side issues were remedied by the end of day, which is even more impressive as the amount of users trying to play was enormous. There was a time where it didn't seem like anything could touch PUBG and its status at the top of the Battle Royale market until Fortnite came along and it seems like they have been sitting in the same position ever since. And having the extreme polish that Call of Duty offers on top of being free to play definitely gives it a shot at the title, but the one area where it will be challenging is its appearance of being non-kid friendly. I'm not saying it's safe for young children, but I also don't think Fortnite is either, although it appears more colorful and less violent, which is always helpful when parents play a major role in what's allowed for a large demographic of gamers. I will be interesting to see how Warzone grows and how Call of Duty annually work in tandem with each other from here on out. Moving on, this week on the PlayStation blog, Sid Schumann sat down for an interview with head of PlayStation Worldwide Studios, Herman Hulst, for a quick chat. Herman was asked a lot of questions about what makes Worldwide Studios so special and what has changed since he took over, but the big takeaways from the interview 
is what does PlayStation look like moving forward into the future? When asked about his vision for the future, Herman answered, we're very committed to dedicated hardware as we were before. We're going to continue to do that and we're very committed to quality exclusives and to strong narrative-driven single-player games. And at the same time, we're going to be very open to experimentation, to new ideas, and just trying things out to see what works. I also think that's very much part of DNA of Worldwide Studios. Now what Herman is basically saying here is that even though Microsoft has Game Pass including its PC counterpart, PlayStation and their identity has always been exclusives. The PlayStation brand has a long history of having some of the best games only available in their ecosystem, going all the way back to the PS1 with Metal Gear and Crash Bandicoot, to more current favorites including Uncharted, The Last of Us, and God of War. Also, going forward, PlayStation will continue to embrace large, single-player-focused games, so there's no worry about those dying again this generation. Mixed messaging from Microsoft aside, one of the main reasons Sony was able to dominate this console generation is in big part to its exclusives, with many of them focused on single-player experiences. Games like Bloodborne, games like Spider-Man, Until Dawn, uh, games like Uncharted 4, God of War, Death Stranding, and Horizon Zero Dawn. And despite many people saying that this would be the last console generation and that single-player games were dead, Sony was able to disprove all of this by selling over 100 million units on the shoulders of these amazing experiences. What Herman also said is that the company will be open to trying new things, including the main reason for this interview, which was to confirm that Horizon Zero Dawn is coming to the PC. And this concerns some who worry that PlayStation will be putting most of their exclusives on PC to compete with Microsoft, and this would take away from their edge of exclusivity that Sony has used since the beginning of its brand. However, I am far less concerned for a few reasons, with the first being that Horizon Zero Dawn came out in 2017, and by the time it gets released this summer, it will be well over three years old. And at this point, the game's sales cycle will have already all but ended, and bringing the game to PC is nothing but a good thing, as it will generate interest in not only Horizon, but also in the PlayStation brand. And secondly, this generation, there have been a plethora of PS4 exclusives, and the amount that have been ported to other systems could be counted on one hand. What releasing Horizon on the PC basically says to me is that its sequel, whatever it's called, will be a day one release for the PlayStation 5. Not only will this IP benefit from the publicity and marketing it gets when released on PC this summer, but it will also have been around three and a half years since Zero Dawn was released, which is a good amount of time to be working on a sequel. Guerrilla Games' track record gives extra weight to this theory. Killzone Shadowfall was a launch title for the PS4 in 2013, which really showed off just how much power the system had and what worlds it was capable of delivering, although it missed some art critically. Killzone 3 was released in 2011, meaning that the team was able to create a new game, but also a new engine in a two-year window. Killzone Shadowfall was the first to use Decima, which Gorilla created in-house. This is why I strongly believe that Aloy will be showing up this fall on the PS5. Not only will it look incredible, but with the extra power, they will most likely be able to fix one of the major issues of the first game, and that would be the invisible walls. Herman also ended the interview by saying, and maybe to put a few minds at ease, releasing one first-party AAA title to PC doesn't necessarily mean that every game from now on will come to PC. In my mind, Horizon Zero Dawn was just a great fit in this particular instance. We don't have plans for a day-and-date release on PC, and we remain 100% committed to dedicated hardware. Herman makes it clear that Sony isn't concerned at the moment with Microsoft's venture into the PC space. It should also be noted that Dreams was mentioned a lot in this interview as well, which could just be due to its recent release. But I think more reading between the lines, it's more likely that Sony subconsciously is preparing fans for a few more games to come to PC, including Dreams.
Moving on to the next story, just five days longer than a full year, GameStop announced that Reggie fils will be joining the board of directors along with a few other new members. Reggie fils announced his retirement on April 15, 2019 and will join GameStop on their board starting on April 20, 2020. This certainly makes it seem like there was a non-compete clause in his retirement contract because I'm sure opportunities have made his way to Reggie fils post-Nintendo. GameStop has been very busy over the past year doing pilot stores, putting new strategies in place, restructuring, and now adding new members to their board with vast corporate experience. The press release on their investor site stated that it has appointed three new independent members to its board of directors. Joining the company's board are Reginald Reggie fils William Bill Simon, and James Simancic. Mr. Simon and Mr. Simancic appointments are effective immediately, and Mr. fils will be effective April 20th, 2020. Shares of GameStop started the week around 3.55 a share, and after the announcement of Reggie joining, it is around 4.14, which was around a 15% increase. And even with a terrible week on the stock market and the end surge, GameStop closed at 4.59, which was up 28% for the week, which is very impressive. It's hard to know if the share price rise is related to confidence in the newly appointed board members or if it's just market correction. Board members can only do so much to save this company if GameStop Corporate doesn't have the right ideas in the first place. A board of directors is mainly in place to represent an outside, non-biased opinion at shareholder meetings that can represent the minority shareholders' best interests. Although having the right members with the right experience can go a long way, but there is only so much that can be done with the components that they are given. George Sherman, CEO of GameStop, released the official comment regarding the addition of the three new members of the board. We are pleased to welcome Reggie, Bill, and JK to the board. They are each highly qualified and bring significant, relevant experience to our turnaround. We look forward to immediately benefiting from their expertise and perspectives as we navigate the evolving gaming and retail environments, execute on our strategic initiatives, and prepare the company to maximize value creation associated with the next generation of console launches later this year. Reggie seems to have the most relevant experience as he was president of Nintendo of America for 13 years, which ended in 2019. And during his tenure there, there were plenty of ups and downs, including being there for the highs of the Wii and the downfalls of the Wii U and the great success of the 3DS as well as the Switch. Although the main concern with GameStop is they are fighting to stay relevant in a digital world. And if there's one knock against Nintendo as a company, it's that they've struggled to keep up with the competitors in the digital arena. As for the other two newly appointed members, William Simon was the president and CEO of Walmart from 2010 to 2014, and James Simancic is currently the president and CEO of PetSmart and has been since 2018. These are all distinguished resumes with plenty of top-level experience, but my concern is that I wouldn't classify any of these men as titans in the e-commerce or digital marketplace. And finally, our biggest story of the week in terms of gaming, and after a lot of speculation, E3 2020 has been officially cancelled due to the impending concerns of coronavirus. With LA recently declaring a state of emergency and others like New York City deploying the National Guard, there is too much risk involved in hosting an event that is so reliant on mass travel and social networking. There could be a lot of pessimistic thoughts that think that E3 is using this as a cover, but the ESA clearly saw what would happen with the amount of attendees that pulled out of PAX East and the amount that pulled out of GDC before they officially postponed their event as well. The ESA had no choice but to cancel the event. Outside of the gaming world, many things have been canceled or postponed. The latest this week includes South by Southwest, Coachella, the NBA and the NHL suspending their seasons indefinitely, and the president suspending travel from Europe into the U.S. for 30 days 
to reassess the situation. Every day something new closes or suspends, and as you can see, it would have been ignorant for the ESA not to cancel the event for June, as we are fast approaching and travel plans need to be made in advance. On top of that, putting that many people at risk just wouldn't have come across as the right thing to do, especially for an association that is trying to regain its status after many negative events. On the official E3 site, the ESA announced their decision after careful consultation with our member companies regarding the health and safety of everyone in our industry, our fans, our employees, our exhibitors, and our longtime E3 partners, we have made the difficult decision to cancel E3 2020, scheduled for June 9th to 11th in Los Angeles. Following increased and overwhelming concerns about the COVID-19 virus, we felt this was the best way to proceed during such an unprecedented global situation. We are very disappointed that we are unable to hold this event for our fans and supporters, but we know it's the right decision based on the information that we have today. One thing to note is that the ESA announced that they would be reaching out to all attendees and exhibitors about full refunds, which is a great move and a good look. And although it may seem like the obvious choice, it isn't because the recently canceled South by Southwest will not be offering refunds. And there could be many reasons for taking this stance, including contract wording, insurance policy coverage, or bottom lines. But in the wake of a health crisis, canceling many of these events seems like the right thing to do, but not offering full refunds seems like a very bad look. I think it's good that the ESA either has the awareness to make the right decision or the right wording in their insurance coverage in event of pandemics, and this could have easily been another fumbled moment for the ESA. Both Microsoft and Ubisoft announced almost immediately after their intent to offer something in the digital space. Ubisoft said, we're exploring other options for a digital experience that will allow us to share all the exciting news that we have planned. Stay tuned for more. And Phil Spencer also got on Twitter shortly after the ESA made their announcement to discuss Microsoft's intent. And he said, E3 has always been an important moment for the team at Xbox. And given this decision, this year we'll celebrate the next generation of gaming with the Xbox community and all those who love to play via a Xbox digital event. Details on timing and more in the coming weeks. As you can see, a lot of these developers relied on the timing of the event more than the event itself to announce their plans for the second half of the year. And it seems that it will be full steam ahead for most companies who will most likely either produce something along the lines of a Nintendo Direct or some type of live stream. And I assume most companies will take the direct approach as it is a much more controlled environment. The ESA is still trying to have a presence this summer as they ended the press release by saying we are also exploring options with our members to coordinate an online experience to showcase industry announcements and news in June 2020. And my question is, what does aligning with the ESA and E3 to do a digital event actually offer in terms of benefits? I assume most companies will just announce a date around the beginning of June when they will host a digital event. Many companies are going to take part in an experiment this year of what kind of outreach and results they can get without a big budget of taking part in E3 that includes travel, accommodations, booth space, human resources, and so much more. And I think this could go either way, and maybe it's harder than we can imagine to capture as much attention digitally, individually, without a collective E3 happening. But the landscape will change one way or another. I think there will still be a massive interest from the gaming community for new content, especially in a year with new consoles. And I think gamers will get this content as many of these plans from companies have been in the works most likely since E3 2019 finished. It will just be interesting to see how all of this content is offered to us directly and through outlets.
That's going to be it for the show this week. Thank you again for listening to the Video Games Podcast, and thank you again for being here. If you made it this far, then you most likely enjoyed the show. And if you aren't already subscribed, then please consider doing so, as it helps me out, and it's free. As I mentioned at the start of the show, our review for Ori and the Will of the Wisps and Warzone are in progress and will hopefully be up sooner than later. And I think now, more than ever, is a good time to realize that gaming is supposed to be fun, so please be nice to your fellow gamer. And more, more importantly, be nice to your fellow human. We'll see you next week.